Hi, I'm Jake Morkham. I'm Ellen Lee Vader. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Okay, so we've done, on the show, we've looked at sustainable houses. We've been to a few. Mm -hmm. We've talked about our own houses and how crappy (laughs) they are on a sustainability scale. But this week is World Green Building Week. So going from the house to the commercial setting. To your workplace. To your workplace, to your shopping centre. To cafes, any entertainment venues you go to. You know what's really bad about this building, the station? Where we work. Yeah, where we work, yeah. is the tap in the third story bathroom. Like I go in there and every time that someone's been in the bathroom before me, they leave they that le- tap they on. They leave the tap on because the tap doesn't turn off properly. I think, okay, goal for this week is to get a sign, mm. stick it up, make sure the tap is turned off. I know, but we should do it with um, cu- like recycled paper. <laughs> <laughs> and bamboo pens. And bamboo pens. So yeah, we'll do a couple of stories today visiting a couple of commercial sustainable buildings. And one of them actually has a six star green rating. Is that six out of 10? No, it's like, you know how they rate movies like out of five stars? It's kind of like six star. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's coming up. But up first. Driving through the areas afterwards, uh, was it was... It was... To be honest, if I, I mean, I don't want to over-hype it, but it was pretty horrifying, you know. Uh, I'm driving through areas where homes were just gone. The, the bushland was completely devo. And, you know, you'd walk... You, we went to the local shops once we moved back, um, right in the area where the fires were. This was the Wimberley fires. We went to our local shops there, and, and there was a mood. There was an atmosphere that was I, I really wouldn't want to experience again. I was, I was actually at work and I was looking at the, the fires near me app, I think it was. Anyway, I, was, I found out that there was a fire and it started in a street that I knew a friend lived in. This is Brad Murray from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And so I've just grabbed my bag, jumped on the train and head back. And as I've headed back, I've actually got footage from the train. You can see the huge smoke plumes coming off the, the Blue Mountains. People were freaking out on the trains. There was, there was a guy incredibly worried. Um, he was losing it because his family was still up there. So that, that has an impact. You know, I, I managed to, to get home um, and we waited a couple of days, but then a friend of mine working with the RFS said that there was a really bad day coming up because the fires went for several days. And he said, he's getting his family out, I probably should get my family out. So we had a six month old child as well. So it was amazing. No, but that, that shows that, like, I understand, on the one hand, I do understand the, the stresses and the scariness of it all. And that's what's prompted me to try and understand the, how it works and what we can do to try to, to fight fires at the home zone, you know, like in the urban areas. But it, it's trying to find a way that, yes, you need fires, but yes, we also need to be able to live safely. <laughs> So over the last few years, we've been looking at understanding flammability of plant leaves. So we look at a range of different species and we compare which ones are more flammable with which ones that are less flammable. From what I got from your reading, just a little bit about your research, is that the exotic leaves or the exotic species are more flammable. 
Why is that? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Um, they're flammable in some ways um, and equivalently flammable in others. So it, it's, a, it's a little bit tricky. When the, the leaves are fresh, so when you collect them fresh off the plant, our work looking at comparing natives and exotics from on bushland around Sydney has shown that those fresh leaves don't really differ in flammability much. When they dry out and they're like leaves in the litter bed, the exotic leaves are significantly faster in igniting. So they'll catch fire much more quickly than dry native leaves. What, what actually defines, or how do you define what an exotic plant species is? Yeah, yeah. no, look, that's a, that, again, that's a really good question. Uh, technically, simply, I work on the definition that if, if it's been introduced by human activities in, in whatever way to an area that it wouldn't naturally be a part of, uh, it's an exotic species. Things like lantana, um, which people would know, African olive, I've mentioned before, there are invasive pines, uh, lots of smaller things, agapanthus. <laughs> this is an interesting thing. A lot of these exotics you can buy from, from garden shops, you know, and some of these are invasives. Um, so that's another, <laughs> another question. So the crux of your research is essentially looking at the symbiosis of exotic and native, more so near people's houses as opposed to what's out in the bush because... Uh, like the bush is big (laughs) that's exactly right why that's important is that if you get exotic species coming in where you find a lot of exotics on the edge of bushland around along roads you'll find that if the exotics are there they're dropping more leaves the leaves are more flammable you're going to get quicker fire spread right so what is it particularly about the leaves is it is it just because they're from a different plant or or they're not used to a fire culture or fire ecosystem that we have here in Australia is is that what makes them more flammable yeah mate look you 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 know you're hitting on the real guts of stuff here this is a really interesting stuff for us Uh, where we're starting is to look at other traits of the leaves so how big the leaves are what they contain their chemical compositions their water contents and look it's pretty well established that leaf water content is possibly you know one of the major components so one of the reasons that the exotic leaves are as equivalently flammable as the natives uh, when they're fresh is because they have a very high significantly higher water content than the natives so that's why people say plant exotics right but they don't understand also that natives have the same kind of resistance to flammability and one of the areas we really want to delve into is the volatile oils, um, especially in things like eucalypts. So um, does that mean that eucalypt leaves are quite flammable or, or not so? Yeah, yeah. Like they're pretty well known to be very flammable. But they're a native species, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So and there's there's an idea that, that you know, it's called the much hypothesis that um, a lot of Australia's vegetation has evolved to be flammable. So that um, once they're the adults, they promote fire because then you get this beautiful ash um, bed on the on the forest floor that's, that's high in nutrients and perfect for seedlings to germinate and grow. That's a that's a hypothesis that's really hard to test because it's it's an evolutionary thing. So you've got to come up with some clever ways of trying to get at that. I was on your website and the first thing I wanted to check out was all the photos and one photo was where you're, I don't know where you are, but you're out in the bush and you're actually standing next to a wildfire. Like, like is, that, is that a common thing for you to do in your line of work? Um, yes and no. Uh, that was actually a wonderful experience. I was working with the RFS up in the Blue Mountains 
RFS is a rural fire service in New South Wales. Yeah, they were doing what's known as a hazard reduction burn. They burn off a bunch of vegetation in the hope that it will enable them to have areas to work in to prevent future fires from spreading. And it's a way of reducing the the amount of flammable material before the fire season. Being in the proximity of these plants burning, does that give you um, insight into how it all happens actually on the ground? Absolutely. Uh, one of the one of the key things there is potentially seeing fires in areas where you wouldn't normally see fires. Um, so some of the alpine areas in Tasmania that recently burnt that really probably see fires once in a hundred years, if that. What brought that on? I don't recall what started it, but it spreads so rapidly, and you can see these images, you know, these images from space almost of these huge tracts of, of Tasmania that are just decimated. Uh, and in terms of the, the the plants and the animals that were there, who you know who are in those systems trying to re-establish after those sorts of fires to which they're unaccustomed, it's you know some of them may never come back. Some of those systems may never come back. But I think one of the underpinning ideas is that, that what we're seeing with climate change, with the the more intense fires, is is a big part of it. So how do things like climate change or unexpected fires um, challenge your research? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> or do they make it that there's more research to do? Yeah, well, that's that's exactly it. So I guess one of the things that, that we're sort of thinking about is we might normally look at the flammability of areas, of vegetation in areas that, that are fire prone. Perhaps we should be looking at areas that necessar- don't necessarily burn as much or as often and see how they compare in terms of their flammability. And I, I guess I look at climate change more as, a, as an impetus in that we are seeing more fires, more intense fires. Let's understand how fires work. I remember growing up as a kid, I, like, I was made shit scared about it. And, and my parents, because I live near Barara, oh, and so yeah. that's a really fire-prone area as well. And yeah, we were kind of just brought up to be scared by it. Like you said, although maybe getting worse or they're getting more intense is with things like climate change and so on, they're, they're still a naturally occurring event. No, they are. And this is what we need to understand is that it's, it's like fear of spiders, you know. Um, it's probably a primal instinct to want to run. But we do have to understand, I think, that it fires are, a, are an inherent part of these systems. And if we learn how to manage the way that we live, say by fire-friendly gardens or fire-unfriendly gardens, whatever we want to put it, if you want to live somewhere close to the bush where you've got the benefits the services that those ecosystems provide for you. Everyone in the mountains understands that, you know, and, and most people living in these sorts of areas understand that, look, fires are a natural part, they're a pain in the butt, but that's just the way it is. You know, I know people who live in these areas, their house has been destroyed, they just rebuild. Maybe they'll rebuild with different materials, using the latest knowledge, um, but fires are natural parts of these ecosystems. Brad Murray, Senior Lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. So when we're talking about sustainable buildings, you know, whenever you go to a bathroom anywhere, there's Mm. always, well, I always hope that there's a hand dryer because that is a more sustainable way of drying my hands. After going to the bathroom. After going to the bathroom. Is it though? Like I'm always like, okay, we're using paper, it's destroying trees and the process that's taken to get the paper here. But also how much energy is that hand dryer using? How frequently is it being used I did read about this and... It is because of the, you know, the chopping down the trees to use the paper and then the fact that the paper then has to get transported to landfill. Right. And that's kind of where the big energy consumption is. So, you know, I guess the idea would be for everyone to have towels in their bathrooms that you can dry your hands on. But but I guess if you wash them regularly, 
not using too much water. Yeah, or they're, if you're in a really, really fancy place and they have the hand towels for yeah. everybody. But, you know, obviously I don't go to that many fancy places. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about this because it's World Green Building Week this week. So I went along to a sustainable building uh, not too far from here to check out what it was all about. Seven levels down. You can wow. see it spiralling right down to the basement. Have you, you, have you seen Harry Potter? Yes. You know, you know when um, they kind of go up to where the dormitories are? Yeah. It's, it kind of looks like Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> this one doesn't change, though. It stays in place. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm chatting with Danielle McCartney, who is the sustainability manager at the University of Technology, Sydney. And at the moment, we're standing in the stairwell of the science building at UTS. And Danielle's taking me on a bit of a tour around. There's a lot of natural light coming in from this circular um, skylight here. You know, in education buildings, we have whole classes coming in and out of spaces at the same time. So it's much easier to get people around buildings if they use stairs rather than everyone trying to pile into lifts. Now, the reason I'm getting this private tour is it's World Green Building Week this week. And Danielle's showing me some of the sustainable features of the science building. And one of their most impressive is their green roof. So we walked up to the roof to go have a look. Where are we? Where are we right now? Well, we're on level seven, which is the um, beautiful green roof. Um, It's also the the Dean's unit. The green roof has um, a lot of benefits. So it can um, retain water, the stormwater when it rains, um, which means it doesn't go out into the street and, you know, cause local flooding. Um, It also provides a bit of insulation for the building and it's also a lovely space for staff to come out and, yeah, and people I don't think realise the multitude of benefits it has, like, you know, it brings biodiversity, like we just walked through um, a whole lot of butterflies, Um, (laughs) also insulation for the building, etc., so, so what exactly happens with the insulation? What, what does that then bring to the benefit of the building? Well, uh, the more insulation you have on the outside of a building, the less um, you need to air condition and, or heat and cool it, uh, which means the energy bills are going to be lower. And what was the process? Uh, I know that you're, you probably weren't involved in the physical construction of the green roof, but how do you get something like this together? Well, it was um, a long sort of design um, and construction process. Um, we had landscape architects and, and architects and um, hydraulic engineers, so we made sure that the um, the green roof was all waterproofed. Uh, then you bring the soil in, and we had a landscape architect um, tell us what sort of plants would be suitable for um, level seven of a building where it might be sunny sometimes or windy. What, what are the actual plants up here? Uh, well, we've got some um, drought-tolerant plants. Um, we've also got a few um, exotics, like the beautiful frangipani. We've got quite a few um, native grasses up here as well. And the idea was to install like hardy plants that didn't need a lot of water. It's an aesthetic thing as well, because we're also just over the road from Central Park, which has kind of become a little bit of a landmark in itself. Like you said, staff come up here and kind of just enjoy the aesthetic of it too. Um, You can also see one of our other green walls, which is between Building 10 and Building 11, and that's um, actually a metre wide and probably four or five metres high. That's actually concealing. You don't realise it when you walk past, but it's concealing a whole lot of gas pipes and metres, and it's actually got a door right in the middle of it so you know you can get access to those meters ah, so you don't it kind of just covers up a little bit of the engineering yeah <laughs> do you come up here now a university isn't just one building it's a number of them so there's a lot to take note of when it comes to sustainability 
And this week, UTS is actually opening up its doors and inviting you on a tour to see how a sustainable building like the science building at a university functions. And Danielle is the tour guide. The actual outside of the building, um, I don't know if people realise, but it's um, made of recycled glass. So it's a German product and it's sort of a compressed sandwich panel. And about 75% of it is made from crushed up recycled domestic glass. Domestic glass? Um, just the, the glass that we throw out, you know, in our bottles. And um... How does it get from that point to becoming part of UTS? <laughs> um, well, it was something that our architects selected. Uh, it's a product that hasn't been used here before, but it's been used quite a lot in Germany. What do you think a building has to consider when they're taking sustainability into construction? Well, sustainable buildings is not just about energy efficiency, which are, that's what a lot of people think. Um, it's also about water efficiency, sustainable transport, transport, it's about biodiversity, uh, indoor air quality, like the whole range of attributes. And um, all of our buildings have a minimum five-star Green Star certified rating, and that's what Green Star does. It's not just about energy efficiency, it's the whole gamut of sustainability attributes that make up a green building. Yeah, so where did this Green Star rating come from, and and how did the UTS buildings get to the point of being five-star? Um, so the Green Building Council of Australia developed the Green Star tool and it's, it's quite similar to um, other tools in the US and the UK. And so it's a rating system that uh, allocates points based on um, certain building attributes. So to get a five-star rating, you need at least 60 points and to get a six-star, which represents world leadership in the sustainable design of tertiary education buildings, you need um, 75 points. Um, which is the maximum you can get. And this and this building here is six star. Yeah, yeah. It's, so what boxes does it tick? <laughs> um, well, it had to tick a whole lot of boxes um, for energy efficiency, water efficiency. Um, we also got the living lab concept. So on one of our buildings, the Faculty of Engineering and IT building, we have a whole lot of solar panels and a wind turbine, and they all have meters on them and sensors, which and the information and data from those sensors is available to staff and students if they want to research renewable energy. Right, it's a living lab. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Because it's not just essentially to have a building for the sake of being a sustainable building, but implementing that into practice of what happens inside the building as well. That's right. I think um, universities have um, a really important role to educate not only their students, but also the community. So any way that we can sort of showcase our buildings to the public will have positive benefits. Danielle McCartney, UTS Sustainability Manager. So we've alluded to like our workplace and cafes and shopping centres that we visit on a regular basis. And I guess because we use them so often, we kind of hope that they're sustainable. But mm. I don't know about you, do you think about the Sydney attractions, like the Sydney Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Do you ever consider about our icons being sustainable? I guess that's a big one to consider because you have so many people coming in and out of them at all times of the year and you have to have upkeep and, you know, you've got food in there, you've got people using the toilets, you've got it having to be powered. It's got to be clean all the time. And something with Sydney Opera House as well is vivid. 
<laughs> oh my, yeah, the like lights. We, we did a story on this earlier on in the year and about how they were finding alternative energy sources, um, green energy to power the festival, essentially. But I wanted to find out what else is happening inside, like inside the opera house. How can they make that attraction sustainable? So I caught up with Naomi Martin, the sustainability manager of the Sydney Opera House, to find out. The initial architect and his sustainability plan for its initial design, mm. what was he including in that? Yeah, so Johan Utzen didn't see himself as a sustainable designer. Like There wasn't actually a word back in you know, sort of the 1950s when he was designing that. But what he did want to do was make a quality building and a building that was right for the space. He looked at shells and clouds and headlands and nature's colours and light and wanted to make a building that reflected that and also you know made the best use of the beautiful natural headland he was a sailor and he used to sail around this particular castle in Denmark and you know he wanted to sort of refl- you know reflect that that you could have beautiful views from mm. wherever you were around the opera house so he responded to nature and the location uh, but then he also just made a really good quality building and it was designed for 250 years rather than 80 years which most buildings are designed for so it's made of good quality surfaces that are last but then he has a lot of features in his design that now is called sustainable design, like not using lots of carpet and lots of paint. You can see the concrete and you can see the wood and you can see the, um, you know, see the timber. And it's so, and that means that there's less materials you have to keep on replacing and repainting and that type of stuff. He also had a seawater cooling system, which comes into the air conditioning system and helps to cool the building efficiently. Yeah, I, I guess that's where the potential is, even more so for the future, where sustainability isn't just taken on in respect as something side to its construction, mm. but actually embedded in there because the amount of energy or resources that you might need to construct it, mm. if you have that in mind, that's the most viable option. And I think Joseph Carl, who envisioned the Opera House to start off with, he said um, the Opera House was there to make a better and more enlightened community. And so when you've got the premier who's looking at this building, not as just a building and not, but as a place to make the community and the society better, then, you know, I think everyone was inspired to make this great building that would last and would stand the test of time. And I think when you've got everyone working to get the best quality, often you get sustainable outcomes anyway, just because they're wanting the building that will work the most efficiently. And mm-hmm. What sort of things does the opera house have to take into consideration when it comes to sustainability? Well, we do use a lot of electricity. We use about $3 million worth of electricity per year, which is about the same, and it's about the equivalent amount of electricity as the town of Burke. But when you think about it, the opera house has, you know, 5,000 people when it's full. So it is like a small town when it's, you know, when it's pumping. And, you know, and there's uh, almost 2,000 shows every year. So it is almost full almost every day. So uh, water, we use a lot of water just through, there's lots of people on site, 8 million people per year. So that's a lot of toilets flushing Mm -hmm. and waste. I didn't realize before I started the opera house, restaurants create so much waste and particularly food waste. Mm. And um, just, I guess it's just the nature of the business. So um, we create about three tons of waste every day and we're very, I know it's crazy, isn't it? And Mm. Uh, we've just this year introduced food waste recycling and um, that's made a big difference. We've jumped from, before we started doing recycling, we were at 20% recycling and now we're at 65. Like, so we went from 40 to 65 this year from putting food waste recycling in. I remember speaking when we um, were talking about Vivid mm. and how you guys were powering through green energy. Yep. Was that Vivid specific or is the Opera House looking to power their facilities more so off a green electrical grid? 
So we've set a target for when we turn 50, when the building turns 50 in 2023, that we'll be certified carbon neutral. And 80% of our carbon footprint is electricity. So it's definitely going to have to be by renewable energy and most likely through some sort of green power program. So you can buy renewable energy direct from suppliers or you can go through a green power program, which is you know, sort of does the brokering for you. So we will definitely have some component of renewable energy in reducing our carbon footprint. There'll also be like for Vivid, I guess it's a good test case for Vivid. We try and just focus on, you know, this one concrete example of a really iconic festival and, and what do we need to do? We need to green power or get renewable energy for the electricity, but then also there's lots of other impacts as well, like the you new know, gas that we use or fuel that we use for petrol or flights and, and transport that we also we'll have to be looking at offsetting as well. So currently we just do it for festivals. To go to the five-star rating that Mm. you're trying to achieve, is that going to be an expensive one? It's going to take resources uh, in terms of people and for the things that we need to do to improve, the things like um, procurement that talks about sustainable procurement and getting our finance team to have some clauses and some principles around procuring sustainably and what that means for us and there's things about construction and refurbishment and fit out waste, which is, you know, so it needs the building team to be involved in that. And then the stuff about indoor environment quality and measuring what we do better. It's not going to be necessarily expensive. It's just going to take people's time and changing your processes. Yeah. How about even in terms of just that transition to online and everybody is engaging in that space as opposed to perhaps printing out Uh, pamphlets or flyers or even programs Mm. what are you doing in terms of online and paper brochuring and that sort of stuff I started the opera house in well seven years ago so and our first plan was in 2010 and I had a strong focus on paper then because it was a significant impact particularly with marketing you're right you know all the paper around shows but there's been such a transition in this time that I don't think it needs to be such a focus anymore just by natural attrition we used to have big display windows that had core flute posters in them and now they're all digital displays and a lot of the, the signage and the drapes that would be like for a Festival of Dangerous Ideas, they'd have drapes. Now they have, you know, digital projections mm. that say Festival of Dangerous Ideas 2016. You know, more and more of our revenue comes from people buying tickets online and looking at advertising online. So even though we've got a, a certain demographic and population who go to the opera and the ballet who st- still want those paper products you know we're realizing that we have to we can print less and and advertise in different ways which is i think we are truly becoming paperless now whereas seven years ago we weren't it was looked like it was a long way away naomi martin sustainability manager of the sydney opera house Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more info about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us in your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. See you next week. <laughs>